that space and time are linked together. As we are looking across space, we are looking back in time. You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. again to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. I'm Bob Uricu. And today we're going to talk about uh, a new metaphysical position called materialism, new relative to what we were discussing last time, which was Cartesian dualism. Sure. We just have to remember where Descartes led us. He, he brought us to the point of distinction between two substances, mental substance and material substance, mind and matter. And a philosopher could jump off from that and say, let's go down just one road. Why do we need the other? So from that, materialism comes into prominence. It's been around all the time in philosophy since Lucretius. Yeah, as you say, materialism is not anything new in particular in the world of philosophy. It's been around since the ancient Greeks talked about uh, the basis of reality being atoms, in fact, uh, Lucretius and Democritus. Democritus, exactly went through some developments uh, before Descartes came on the scene and in one respect it was kind of a, a vibrant doctrine until Descartes came on the scene. Don't, don't you think that uh, really changed things in terms of materialism success because Descartes so forcefully advocated uh, a different metaphysics, the metaphysics of dualism? Sure. We often think that the Greeks and the Romans were um, polytheists, they worshipped many gods and all that, but you know, a lot of thinking Greeks and Romans just scoffed at the idea that there were gods or there was anything like spirit. Uh, common sense people like Democritus and, and Lucretius would look at matter and say, this is it, there's nothing more. There's just matter and there's void. And so materialism is as old as the Greek philosophers uh, and as old as common sense in the sense that people who feel they don't need anything spiritual in their lives are quite satisfied with being materialists. And it was really sort of forward-looking of the atomists, as they were called, to to postulate that there was a fundamental substructure of substance, the the atom, because they they couldn't perceive it directly, but they postulated that it it was there, and it turns out to be not totally off the mark. Not at all. Um, In one sense, it's right on the mark because the very word atom that Democritus used comes from two Greek words. One is the, uh, the word for cutting. We see that in like lobotomy, you know, when you cut into the brain. And then the Greek negative, a. So atom means no more cutting, indivisible. That's the, the bottom line. It, matter can't be cut into anything else except those, this, this unit. So it, Democritus was right on the money there. Of course, we'll find we'd find out much later on that the atom could be divided, much to our horror sometimes. Right. Yeah, that led to a lot of consequences, some of which were very observable, including the uh, the atomic bomb, and then others which we don't immediately think of, but are just as as important. Uh, even in Descartes' day, though, although dualism was 
sort of staging a resurgence, there were other materialists. Uh, Hobbes leaps to mind as the, the prominent example. Yes. Because yes. he certainly couldn't understand the notion of anything in the universe not having physical properties. It just didn't make any sense. Sure. If, if our knowledge comes through our senses, everything we sense has physical properties. It's matter. For Hobbes, that had to include the mind, right? Thinking. Which yes. Is yes what was so different between uh, him and Descartes. Descartes still wanted to hang on to this notion of uh, a non-physical mind, although Descartes did concede that the body was completely physical. He just couldn't let go of that one last little aspect, right. which uh, subsequent philosophers said, well, what's the worst that can happen if we let this go? Well, we're not losing anything because we can't find it anyway, and we might be able to explain more if we just focus on what we can observe and test, which is, of course, the brain. Yeah, and, and this, is what, what, this is what science can measure, what can be observed and tested. And the scientist has very little room for speculating about spiritual entities. Um, what can be weighed and measured, tested in a laboratory environment? Um, I think it's well illustrated by uh, Napoleon's questioning the French scientist Laplace and he said you know I read your work but I, I see no mention of God in any of this and Pla Laplace replied je n'ai pas besoin de cette hypothèse I don't need that hypothesis to make my philosophy or make my science work so materialism that just sums up materialism it's what's there it works and you don't need any extraneous spiritual ideas even ideas about God to make nature work. Yeah, that's that's the whole problem with uh, postulating this non-physical substance, the mind, because when you go to try to explain what's going on in thinking, it seems like we're able to do that, at least quite a lot of thinking, without appealing to the mind. We can talk about the mind, but when it comes to explaining thinking, cognition, seems like we can do that with the physical processes of the brain. So then you have to ask, well, what's the mind doing? If it's just there because we want it to be there, or is it really doing some fundamental work? And scientists and philosophers keep coming to the conclusion that it's, it's not doing anything. Of course, they conclude the reason it's not doing anything is because it's not there. That's right. You know, before we go any further in the conversation about the metaphysics of materialism, we might want to clear up a potential confusion between several different uses of the word materialism, because when we talk about materialism in philosophy, we mean a certain metaphysical position. When a lot of people in the, uh, in the everyday world, let's say, talk about materialism, they don't mean it in that same sense. They mean it much more in the uh, Madonna, I'm a material girl sure. sense, right? Yeah, that's Buying stuff. It's a very loaded term. It carries um, emotional baggage with it. Um, like consumerism, and that all you think about is money, greed, and um, and materialists in the philosophical sense are unfortunately tied to that and given sort of a bad reputation because of that. That's right. I mean, there can be materialists in the philosophical sense who are just as concerned about other values besides buying stuff as anybody else. Certainly, right? certainly. Where Descartes was a dualist, splitting the world into mind and matter. The materialist philosopher is a monist and sees reality as just one thing, and it's just matter. And 
in a sense, is being um, using what we used to call Occam's razor to find the simplest solution to a problem. If you don't need spirit to explain reality, don't bring it in. Right. That was exactly Hobbes' point. I mean, if you want to explain how a table works, if you want to explain how a human being works, you don't have to appeal to anything beyond the physical uh, substance. Hobbes did think you, you needed God for something, but not for those uh, fields of explanation. Sure, and this opened um, science and just civilization up to, to the scientific method, relying more and more on science. For example, even in the field of psychiatry, to, um, to say, as was commonly said, that a person behaved in a deviant manner or, or irrationally because they were possessed by some kind of a demon, well, this attributes a spiritual cause when the cause might not be anything but something of, of an imbalance of hormones. And I suspect, uh, speaking of uh, the psychology and psychiatry of it, that uh, Gilbert Ryle's work in the, in the 40s helped progress this notion along that, that the materialist theory could be applied to the mind. Mm. He wrote a, a famous work called The Concept of Mind, where he said uh, Descartes is not simply wrong in a few details about his metaphysical position. It, it, he's wrong in a major sense. Uh, Ryle claimed that he, he committed what he called a category mistake. Category mistake, that's uh, right. Thinking that the mind was a type of thing, mm -hmm. when it's really not a type of thing at all, it's a set of behaviors or dispositions to behave right. in certain ways, which sort of ushered in uh, at least in part the whole notion of behaviorism, not only in philosophy but psychology. Sure. And then while we're on the subject of uh, uh, interesting influences of materialism, I guess we should say something about Marx and his notion of dialectical materialism. Absolutely. Marx took the idea, the idealism of Hegel, that, that reality is just a continual clash of thesis against thesis and Thesis clashes with antithesis, produces a new synthesis, and that that that, that reality is really spirit um, evolving. Marx said, "Why do you need that? Why don't we just see matter? And matter contains the seeds of its own development, and that it strives to improve itself continually. And why not? Why don't we just see human societies being the same way, driven by matter? We don't need spirit. We don't need God." And often Marx is condemned for being an atheist and all this, but there really is no need for God in the Marxist um, view of things, um, in Marxist materialism. It, nature contains all that's essential to nature, to develop, and so does human society. And that's got to be a distressing point for many people who are listening to this and, and studying philosophy, because uh, by some studies, upwards of 90% of people in the United States claim to believe in God in some sense of the word. And so this notion of not needing God as a way of explaining things has, has got to be a little bit distressing. I'm not sure what we can do to assuage that distress, but... Maybe not much, but we, we can assure ourselves that there have been atheists around as long as there have been theists. There have been disbelievers in a, a deity as long as there have been believers in such a deity or deities. And Marx is simply saying you don't need a god to explain reality. Uh, reality follows its own laws. And for Marx, 
His dialectical materialisms of society and economics included uh, or began with uh, a simple communal-based um, economic situation or structure in which everyone got as they deserved and everyone gave as they could. And he said that was opposed by um, ideas of slavery, greed, which resulted in feudalism, and which again morphed into capitalism. So he sees these as all evil ways of structuring society, but society is finding its own, has its own, like matter, has its own laws of development, and it will grow out of these, these um, bizarre deviations. It will find, like water, it'll find its own level, and it'll come back to what it eventually was, and that is a communal living situation, called communism, where everyone gave as they could and everyone took as they needed. That's his ideal. It's a utopian society, we know. It's never really happened. But um, he, he, he does not see the need of a god or religion. In fact, he called religion the opiate of the people, the drug of the people, because it takes their minds off the horrible conditions of living imposed by capitalism, and they don't think there's a, a better way to live. So as long as God's in the mix, people think their salvation will come after this world. Marx is saying, look for your salvation in this world. This is where it is because there's nothing else. And he thought that that idea would inevitably lead to progress. Uh, in fact, he's, he's playing on another idea that materialists are famous for advocating, the notion that there's a certain inevitability to how things will unfold because, after all, everything obeys these, these universal laws of nature, which uh, Newton was one of the first to, to formulate and, and recognize that, that, that there's nothing immune from these laws of course, the interesting part of that is if, if everything obeys these, these laws of nature, that must include us, Indeed. which means that we might not have much choice in, in what happens. Uh, that is, we, we might not have free will, which Laplace, you mentioned earlier, was, was certainly uh, an advocate of the idea that, um, well, if you, if you knew everything about a particular point in time and place in the universe, then you could predict everything that would happen afterwards exactly because everything does follow these laws everything is a sort of a slave to to uh, these physical principles so it, there's no free will sure it's determinism or mechanism and materialism is riddled with that kind of thing and, and of course when Marx's economic and political philosophy merged with Lenin's thinking Lenin felt we could speed up the process of the transformation or morphing of societies into a pure social um, communism by revolution, by taking the bull by the horns and uh, making, making revolution happen, bringing about the, uh, the new utopia, not waiting for a... Yeah, and that's where a lot of people think that uh, Marxism went off the rails because Lenin was trying to artificially create a situation that Marx said would naturally evolve, right? Lenin just couldn't wait. So, for example, in, this, in the Soviet Union, Russia, and the Russian Revolution, the principle was that the moneyed classes, the capitalists, would never give up power voluntarily. So Lenin had this beautiful plan, just shoot them all. <laughs> so millions of kulaks, the, the landowners, were just shot. So they they would be out of the way, <laughs> and um, 
they would no longer be an obstacle to development and the new utopia could come a lot sooner. We know it didn't and the whole experiment failed. Which might call into question something about the underlying notion of materialism or it might simply indicate that there's a need to change the underlying notion of materialism which provides an interesting uh, look into what materialism is like in the 20th century which we can take a look at perhaps after we take a, a bit of a break here on Radio Free Philosophy. When you look out into the night sky and you see the stars far away, you're seeing them because of the light that has traveled from them to you. Now it takes time for light to travel here. So what you're doing is seeing the stars as they were in the past, the amount of time it's taken for the light to reach us. And the further and further away those stars are, the further back in time you're looking. Now, we're seeing a star, let's say, 6,000 years ago. Imagine somebody on that star looking at us. They would be seeing us as we were 6,000 years ago. Which of those two is now? Okay, we're back on Radio Free Philosophy. Uh, my name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Uricu. And uh, the question posed there during the break is, is really interesting because it brings in the notion that materialism has gone through quite a big change in the 20th century, due in large part to, on the one hand, Einstein's theory of relativity, which is what tells us that space and time are inextricably linked like that, and then quantum mechanics, which tells us that the world we perceive around us, although it's orderly and, and governed by laws of nature is not at all the world going on in the, in the subatomic uh, uh, arena. It's, not at all. it's totally different. Subatomic physics has not just revealed the atom and molecules and the, the familiar components of the atom, like the, the nucleus, which contains protons and neutrons, and the electrons that orbit around the nucleus, that's all stuff from high school chemistry and physics, but subatomic physics has revealed a whole world of subatomic particles uh, underlying protons, neutrons. Um, in the end, we have to ask the question, is, is there any matter at all? Is there really a material world? Because at the heart of the material world is energy. And what is energy? Is energy a thing? Is it a substance? or? Um, is it predictable? We were used to Newton's predictable laws, inexorable laws of nature, but we live in an Einsteinian universe which is curved and with laws of space and time that, that Newton never dreamed of. Yeah, uh, uh, Newton's uh, idea that, that everything is rigidly predictable and uh, Laplace's idea of a similar type of idea w was based on a notion of physics where the atom really was the irreducible element of matter but we, as you say we've discovered things smaller than the atom that the atom has a nucleus which has protons and nu neutrons in it turns out those are composed of much smaller particles called quarks and it might even be that if you look closely at the quark it ends up being something very ephemeral like you say energy uh, you know, Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared, part of what that means is energy and matter are, are equivalent. They're the same thing. Well, if the f fundamentally solid matter we perceive is really nothing more than, than energy, that, that changes radically our notion of 
metaphysics, even if we want to maintain a materialist-based uh, everything. There was a famous quote by Eddington that kind of illustrates this change that we're, we're having to accept. Uh, Eddington himself was a physicist, of course, and he said, you know, when I look at a table, I'm really perceiving two tables. The one of ordinary sense experience is the one where I can feel that it has a solidity to it. It, it looks like it's just a stationary object and I mean, I'm sitting on it and it has substance to it. But then there's the table of subatomic physics, which basically postulates that all the table is is a lot of very small particles whizzing around in empty space. So there's the, the majority of what the table is is empty space. Uh, golfers depend on this when they when they uh, are out on the golf course and they hit a hit a shot in the woods because they always say, you know, 90% of the tree is air. Uh, from a subatomic standpoint, that turns out to be true. Of course, it doesn't make hitting the golf ball through it any easier. Yes, it is. Um, the table is just um, a cluster of energy units. And I guess we are, in the end, just our bodies are energy units. They're not substantial. They're mostly empty space, a void. It's like we look at a picture of the uh, solar system, and we see planets millions, hundreds of millions of miles apart. And we're almost 100 million miles from the sun. Um, so space is just that, empty space. It's a void. And you could look at inner space, and every atom is just like a, so a solar system with millions of, million times more empty space than anything substantial in it. So in the end, all, we, all that's there is energy. We used to wonder about light. Is light a wave, or is it a particle? And as you pointed out, things got so exciting for modern subatomic physics that they had to invent new names. They'd see these subatomic particles behaving in such a way that they just invented a new name, quark. Then they, they found others, they called them muons and peons, and they keep going on, finding more and more. And the interesting thing is that they don't seem to behave according to any laws. They seem to do whatever they want. And so Heisenberg postulated his famous uncertainty principle. At, at, at the heart of the universe is uncertainty. There is no determined, determined universe. It, it could go any way it wants. And this is completely counterintuitive, although every time we test it, it's, it seems to pass the tests, and so we, we have to conclude that it's, it's true. In fact, it was so counterintuitive that Einstein could not uh, believe it, which is what led him to famously say, God doesn't play dice with the universe. And if, if God is going to create a universe, he's not going to create one where the fundamental laws are just due to chance and probability. But that's, at least in part, it seems like what quantum mechanics is telling us. I mean, you mentioned the, um, the, the idea of wave-particle duality. Uh, it seems like, according to Heisenberg, it depends on how we look at the particles as to whether they behave like waves mm -hmm. or whether they behave like particles. And one of the frightening implications of that might be that our perceptions actually not simply affect reality, but cause reality. Yes, this is one of the most misunderstood aspects of Einstein's relativity theory, that the universe is relative. We're all the center of the universe. The universe is relative to our perception of it. Yeah, even something as seemingly constant as time. I mean, you set your watch to, uh, to noon, and I set my watch to noon. And uh, assuming we have reasonably accurate watches, if we come back uh, next week, our watches are probably going to uh, read the same time. But if you look at it closely, 
Now you really have to look at this very, very closely because the, the kind of differences we're talking about are, are so minute. But our watches are actually reading different time, not because of the mechanisms themselves, but because time ticks by different for different people. It has to do with how fast we're moving through through space. And what Einstein famously said was, the faster you approach the speed of light, the slower time will go. Mm-hmm. And so now the the effects aren't easily observable unless you're really getting close to the to the speed of light but we have tested this but even in normal circumstances it, it's a detectable difference and so uh, as you point out the, this notion of relativity that, that how we perceive the universe is relative to our frame of reference and if put in a different frame of reference we'll perceive things differently sure I, I'm reminded of that marvelous scene at the end of Stanley Kubrick's Space Odyssey 2001 in which the, the lone surviving astronaut of a mission to Jupiter comes back to Earth but he's coming back as a fetus. Time has slowed down that much for him. Right. And that's uh, alluding to uh, uh, the famous twins paradox of Einstein. If you took two two babies let's say they were twins and supposing you could do it of course, put one on a spaceship that could travel at the speed of light and send it out a certain distance away from the Earth and then back. Uh, when the baby returns, it will hardly have aged at all, mm-hmm. but the, the twin who remained on Earth will be hundreds of years old, assuming it was able to live that long. So time ticks by differently, and it's related to uh, how fast you're going relative to the speed of light. That's the whole theory of relativity right there. Everything's relative. So that's the case, how, how accurate can just crude materialism be? Yeah, the, the so-called notion of classical materialism, which had kind of a, a billiard ball view of matter. That is, uh, material substance was like a lot of little billiard balls that interacted and, and made contact with each other and bounced off and moved around. But you could explain those movements by appealing to a known set of predictable laws, Newton's three laws of motion, for instance things seem to break down at the quantum level when we try that trick because when we try to measure where something is going we we run into a couple problems number one Heisenberg says well you can measure where a particle is going but then you don't exactly know how fast it's going or if you want to you can measure how fast it's going but then you don't exactly know where it's at so the uncertainty principle tells us that you get one piece of knowledge at the expense of another piece of knowledge now it gets a little bit worse because and again, this this has been tested, and it's to- totally counterintuitive, but it seems like this is what's going on. In our ordinary world, let's take, take the example of a billiard ball, which we've talked about before. Hume uses it in his notion of causality. If you take a billiard ball and you hit it, you can detect where it's going to go. You can observe where it's going to go. You can even, in some sense, predict where it's going to go. And obviously, the billiard ball only follows one trajectory from point A to point B. Okay, if you do this trick with an electron, thinking that it's a particle, sort of like a billiard ball, only a lot smaller, it doesn't work that way. According to a, a physicist named Richard Feynman, what really happens is, if you want to trace the trajectory of the electron from point A to point B, it not only takes one path, it takes every possible path. In what he called sum over histories, you have to add up all the different trajectories to find the actual one that it takes because in some sense it's not taking just one trajectory. There's a probability that it's taking an infinite number of trajectories. Uh-huh. 
And isn't this interesting, Kevin? When you can, we can see that materialism was the like the spawning ground for science at one time. Every discovery of science seemed at one point to confirm materialism. People used to quip about um, there can't be a soul because it can't be it can't be measured. Does a soul leave a body at death? How do you know? Does a weight change? Scientists used to joke about that. That every discovery in science for a long time corroborated the fundamental thesis of materialism that there is nothing else but matter. But now the findings of science are almost debunking that kind of crude materialism. And there might be something spiritual at the heart of matter. Yeah, that's a really strange uh, uh, outcome of, of some of this research in, in quantum mechanics that uh, material substance might be, the best word I can think of is ephemeral, not material in any conventional sense of the word. Uh, energy perhaps might be the, the fundamental structure of everything, but energy is not material, at least in the normal sense we think of it. Uh, and if you add on to it Heisenberg's notion, uh, then things get really strange because it starts to shade into a different metaphysics entirely. Instead of the metaphysics of materialism, it might end up being the metaphysics of idealism, which says that the only thing that really exists is the mind that perceives things and the ideas it perceives because Heisenberg takes it one step further than simply our notion of reality is affected by our observations. It might be that our observations create reality. Oh yeah, that has enormous implications. Um, back to Berkeley's um, idealism, or his, uh, his epistemology it says that we essay as percipi, to be is to be perceived, that a thing exists because it is perceived by a perceiver. Now that is not out of line with a lot of modern physics and Einstein's theory. Yeah, people often think of Berkeley as a, a kind of a kook, and we're going to probably talk about him in a, in a future show, uh, but some of the research of quantum mechanics seems to be bearing out his claim. Um, if, if you've ever seen the movie What the Bleep Do We Know it right. plays on this idea exactly. and there's some interesting uh, implications of that that we can talk about uh, perhaps in, in a future show uh, one of them I'd, I'd like to mention just briefly that uh, you might be familiar with is experiments that a Japanese scientist has done with water uh, the idea is that the way we uh, perceive things really affects reality and this uh, fellow named Emoto has tried to test this with water by thinking a certain thought uh, towards towards water it's, it sounds totally ridiculous when you say it but, it but there might be something to it that if you uh, uh, think good thoughts it will affect the water crystals in one way if you think negative thoughts it will affect water crystals in a different way but this is not at all out of line with with the notion of quantum mechanics that our perception does more than just affect reality, it creates the reality around us. Sure, how different is that from a, a trainer, an athletic trainer, telling an athlete, think, envision you sinking that ball in the basket, envision you dropping that ball into the hole, just think it, think positive and it will happen. I wonder if there's not something to it. Might be, we'll uh, take a look at that in a, in a future show on, uh, on Radio Free Philosophy.